Rural hospitals operate in a unique environment, unlike their urban and suburban counterparts. So issues like sequestration, the COVID-19 pandemic, and supply chain concerns have to be addressed in unique ways. So, how do rural hospitals work with the government to meet these challenges head-on? Well, with consistent advocacy efforts, engaging elected officials, and unwavering persistence. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm J.J. Hodshire. And this is Rural Health Rising. Welcome to Episode 50 of Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hodshire, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hillsdale Hospital. And I'm Rachel Lott, Director of Marketing and Development. So, Rachel, you know that in rural health care, we always have to be focused on the environment we're operating in, and we're working with our elected officials constantly, and it's a huge part of what we do, uh, advocacy and otherwise. Last year, we had our U.S. representative on the show to talk about issues surrounding rural health, and we're excited to have him back as an update in 2022. That's right. Our return guest today is Representative Tim Wahlberg, United States Congressman representing Michigan's 7th Congressional District. Welcome back to Rural Health Rising, Tim. Good to be back with you, even though we're doing it uh, by Zoom. I think the last time I was with you, right there in your massive studio. And uh, uh, I guess we use technology today because I just arrived back here in Washington, D.C. And it's good to talk to you. Well, it's glad that you're with us, Tim. And actually, he was here last time when we were a small studio, Rachel. Yes. We've expanded. It's We've twice actually, the size as it was the last yes. time you were in our studio. So we'll have to have you back here to check it out. So, Tim, for those who missed episode 14 that we are all referring to of the last time you were here, those who are meeting you for the first time of our listeners, why don't you just tell us a little bit quickly uh, about yourself, your background, and your work in Congress? Okay, well, I'm a husband of one. Uh, we're, we're approaching 48 years of wow. you putting up with me. And uh, <laughs> God blessed, blessed us with three now grown children, two sons and a daughter, uh, all fulfilling uh, what they perceive their purpose in life is. Um, and uh, we are very proud of our six grandkids, uh, four granddaughters and two grandsons. And uh, they keep us young as we have the opportunity. I grew up on the uh, south side of Chicago, so living in a rural community is very much different from what I was associated with as a kid growing up. Uh, the first 23 years of my life uh, was in, in Chicago, and uh, as a result of uh, my parents taking us camping and sending us to a boys camp in Michigan, I grew to love the outdoors. And when I graduated from high school, I went away to major in forestry at a university. And as while I was there at the university majoring in forestry, God kind of changed directions in my life. And I ended up going back to Chicago to Divinity School. And following that, I was called to a church in the Fort Wayne, Indiana area, New Haven, Indiana. Spent five years there. My wife and I were married during that time. And uh, God bless us with two kids during that time at Parkview Hospital. So we have a relationship with hospitals, you know, <laughs> and then uh, went back to grad school at Wheaton College uh, back in the Chicago area and was called into a church in the suburbs of Tipton, kind of like the suburbs of Cambria <laughs> or probably more like the suburbs, suburbs Camden, of, bank, you know, of bankers. Of bankers. Of bankers. <laughs> uh, so it was a total change of life experience. Thankfully, I'd had some rural 
background with an uncle's farm in Iowa and then being in New Haven, Indiana, on the outskirts of, of uh, Fort Wayne. But it was a new setting. And uh, we've now lived there in the same house that we moved to um, for 43 plus years and raised our kids uh, there in the suburbs of Tipton and uh, pastored there for five years before I was called to uh, buy some local groups, including Right to Life, uh, to run for the state house. I spent 16 years in the state house before term limits took place. And then back in the private sector, two years as a president of a private operating foundation in Northwest Ohio, Southwest Michigan. And then I was called to uh, go back and work with uh, one of my alma maters in Chicago. Didn't have to move. I flew all over the country and the world uh, for them and developed a, a, a new division for uh, the Moody Bible Institute of Chicago and was there for six, six years before I was asked to run for Congress. And uh, we had fits and starts, but ultimately came to Congress in 2007, spent two, two years, one term in Congress. Then people decided that I needed to be term limited and I lost my reelection in 2008, uh, but then uh, was encouraged to, to try to take it back. And in 2010, I did that. And I've been there ever since. And so now serving in my uh, uh, seventh term in Congress, I serve on the Energy and Commerce Committee, uh, on the subcommittees of energy and uh, uh, technology. And then I also still continue to serve on the Education and Labor Committee. So that's what keeps us going. And uh, glad to be with you today talking about uh, issues relative to my life in the rural communities. You know, Congressman, we've always appreciated your passion for your communities. Uh, I've known you for quite a long time, and uh, I do know that uh, what you say uh, and the words that you speak uh, are truly from your heart. You have fire in your belly, uh, and you have done a remarkable job representing rural America in Washington, and and you've represented healthcare. Um, you and I have had many long discussions about the challenges, and we're going to talk about those today. I think that's very important. Um, and you also represent us, and that's an important element for our listeners today, is to understand that you are our voice in Washington. So now that we've established who you are and what you do, let's start with a why. And we did this last time that you were on the program. Um, but for today's listeners who may not have been with us the first time, um, we we want you to tell our audience today um, the why. What is your why? What motivates you? What gets you up out of bed in the morning to do what you do? Well, and not just because I'm a pastor. You know, I'm a, I'm a, a Christ follower, Christian. I believe that God has a plan for every one of our lives. I never, never expected that it would be in politics, that it would be the plan for my life. Remember, I wanted to be a forest ranger. Um, <laughs> and I still love the out of doors. Uh, but um, I love serving people. And I found a passion for doing that, whether it was in the pastorate or in the state legislature or serving constituents of a, of a major divinity school, radio network, uh, missions program, etc. But to serve the 7th District uh, in the U.S. Congress, is something more than just a desire to be in politics, because if it was just that, I wouldn't be. I, I clearly would not uh, undertake the, the challenges of campaigning, raising money for that, dealing with issues that sometimes separate friends, uh, staying away from my social media so I'm not discouraged <laughs> yeah. at what, what's being said on a time, holding town hall meetings. But 
But I guess I just have a passion for being in part of the mix to promote this unbelievably wonderful country that gives so much opportunity for each of us and so much freedom and trying to restore where it needs to be restored, um, reignite uh, where it needs to be reignited and secure where it needs securing. Uh, and then do what the, what the framers and founders of our governmental system said they were doing. And that's working toward a more perfect union. So I'm in the process of perfecting. I'll never achieve perfection, but I can work towards making it better within the confines of that marvelous document called the Constitution uh, with the Bill of Rights that are in there uh, and enhance the opportunities for all who live in my district. So I believe it's I believe it's a calling of God. I believe it's a purpose that I've been given and it's something that I should do with all my heart and the day that I I'm not excited about either stepping out into my community or coming here to Washington, D.C. to do the functions here is the day that I, I probably should hang it up and say thank you and let somebody else take it on. It's always exciting to see that passion, and uh, it's played out every day in your life, so we thank you for that. So let's start with the big topic of the day, uh, not just for healthcare, but for government. Uh, you have been right in the middle of it, and it's uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, we're now almost two years into this, and we've seen Congress act in a number of ways in response to the pandemic. Uh, and we've been through it all, Congressman. You and I have had many discussions from funding uh, to closures to executive orders at the state level that shut down elective surgeries, and we've, you know, we've been through a lot. Um, so just for our listeners today, where do we stand now, and what are you working on as a congressman uh, as it relates to COVID? Well, you're right. It's been two years. It seems like longer than that. Um, and I think it's it feels like that because this is the most unusual time that I think our country has ever experienced relative health and the economy attached to it. Uh, we've had pandemics before. We've had cholera. We've had all sorts of things that have gone on, but we've never, ever shut down the world. We've never shut down our economy. We've followed the science. We've listened to science. We've hoped for outcomes scientifically and medically that would help us. But in the meantime, we went on and did what we do. Uh, for us to have the government step up and on, on the premise, and I think in some of, some of the government officials' lives, the premise was sincere. They felt they needed to do this. But I think they lost track of what the genius of America is. And that's a free people doing free things for the good of themselves and others surrounding them. And, and to do that requires that we keep doing things that make things work. That includes the economy. When, when your hospital was told that you couldn't do elective procedures and you couldn't do even some procedures that were they were called elective, but they were necessary. Elective that the person had maybe a two-month, three-month latitude when they should get it done, but no longer. And you had to shut that down. And then the fear was put out that if I go to the hospital, even if they open it up, maybe I'll get COVID and die with my physical condition that I have. And we, we lost the trust in the professional doctors. And I met a good number of your doctors 
who are passionate about serving the people in the local community, giving local care, constituent service. And then you have uh, workers, and I know you had that at your hospital, With at least I assume, nurses and even doctors who said, you know, I'm at the point I could retire here soon. We've gone through this pandemic. I've spent most of my time in a lockdown alternate situation. I don't want to go through it anymore. I think I'll take my, I think I'll take my retirement now. And we don't have people to follow on after that. Uh, so this has been a challenge that I think we messed up. Uh, the first two months of saying, let's get our act together, I, I get that. That's why I voted for uh, the COVID relief bills that were initial, the first, first two. But after that, I've opposed them, not because I want to be heartless, but I think our country is hurt because we didn't get back to doing the normal things. And uh, that has to change. And boy, I tell you what, thanks to uh, your nurses and doctors, your janitors, your food service workers, uh, uh, all, of the, all of the people that are part of the Hillsdale Hospital system there, you did what you had to do under, under difficult circumstances, but we've got to change it get, it, get it back to normal so you can function. Well, you know, Congressman, you were right there beside us in our initial fight. You gave me great encouragement. Uh, we submitted a letter to the governor, uh, which gained some attention uh, across the country, uh, in which we opposed her shutting down the elective surgeries in Michigan, uh, in respectively here at Hillsdale Hospital, because who knows best, physicians and hospitals? You know, it's not politicians. And I think that was our, our challenge was how do you marriage, you know, safety? We've done it for 100 years in healthcare here at Hillsdale Hospital. We, it's a safe environment. You know, the surgery is a safe place to, to get your surgeries and physicians take steps and to ensure the safety of it. And I'll never forget you on your, I think it was a kayak or a rowboat, uh, you know, asking the governor to open up the lakes because there were certain things in during the pandemic that just did not make sense. It did not make sense to shut down elective surgeries. But hospitals who took a hit from that lost millions of dollars. In, in revenue. And even beyond that, let's take off the greedy administrators at patients lost the ability to have care and to receive the treatments that they needed. So, uh, you know, I applaud your efforts in, you know, coming along with us here at Hillsdale Hospital, you know, as we have raised those flags to say, stop, we've got to save rural health care. Well, and, and, and also, JJ, uh, that five trillion plus, because it's more than five trillion that was put out for COVID relief and assistance, much of that still hasn't been allocated. Correct. It hasn't been spent. There are there are coffers at the state level where those dollars are still very true. waiting to be doled out for the necessary needs. Uh, and much of that should be going to healthcare institutions to assist them. Right. And, and now we have a, a push for more uh, to be put in place when we haven't used what we have appropriated already. So that's a concern to me that when uh, not, it's not a one size fits all hospital situation. And while the big network hospitals, they're entirely necessary and vital. Yeah. Yeah. Yet in rural communities, a hospital, a healthcare center is a very special, unique setting that is almost like a a school district. It is the culture. It is the community itself. It's what they point to as being who we are. Mm -hmm. And sure, you can tell people from Hillsdale to travel to Jackson. They can travel to Fort Wayne. They can travel to um, uh, uh, Battle Creek. Mm -hmm. 
But that's different than having a community hospital. Yes. Where family and friends and neighbors can support, can visit, can care for, can provide help uh, and, and kind of come alongside hospitals. And, and, and the hospital knows the character of the people in the community and knows what it takes to get some of stubborn old guys like me <laughs> to finally admit I better see my doctor. Absolutely. And, and that doesn't take place in some of the larger hospitals. And again, I grew up in Chicago. I have an idea what a large, a large metropolitan area is. And uh, it's unique when we talk about uh, our rural hospitals. And we, 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 can't, we can't put them out of business business or we will pay right, right. the piper later on in some very negative ways. I agree. So goes the community hospital. So goes the community because they're the largest employer, typically second, third largest employer in the community. And so it's very devastating. And where else in a rural community can your CEO call the congressman because he heard through the grapevine he was sick and gave him a hard time? You know, that <laughs> happens in rural America, right? It happens in rural America. It happens, and and where could where could I have had uh, the opportunity of having a test once I admitted the fact? You know, maybe I do have COVID. <laughs> maybe, maybe my wife has it too, and maybe we better right. take the services and get the test. And yeah, and we found out we had it. But yeah, then we sure had doctors who we could talk to on the yep. phone lines who told us what we needed to do. Yeah, and four days later, I was up and going again. That's right. That's right. Well, so, Congressman, kind of to J.J.'s question, um, and also you alluded to this a little bit in terms of funding, um, but with what what you're working on um, as a congressman, what can we expect for COVID-19 relief in 2022? As you mentioned, there's been a lot of funding made available so far. Not all of it has been um, actually used yet, uh, even though it's been appropriated. So, if there is new funding that comes through or also in the effort to ensure that any funding currently used, currently um, appropriated is used adequately, um, how will that process work? How would any new funding be identified or targeted? And the same for the funding that's kind of already floating out there. What, what's um, what's the, the next step on all of that? Well, certainly our office always remains open and ready to uh, help you find what might be available. But your associations as well ought to be ought to be talking to you regularly and saying this is what the state of Michigan has that was allocated from the federal government to be used for health care and rural hospitals, suburban, urban hospitals as well. And here's the process to, to go for it. Um, I mean, uh, I how do I say it? Uh, I enjoy. Let me say it that way. I enjoy the opportunity to call a bureaucrat or have my office call a bureaucrat in Lansing or in Washington and say, what is going on? Why aren't those dollars being used? The, 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 the millions of dollars that are still there to be used for healthcare and for even education sources uh, that have not been used yet. Why not? Um, and so I think that's where we need to go. And then Make sure that's used appropriately, and we just don't dump funding on one-size-fits-all approaches. If you're a hospital, you get this. If you're if you're a healthcare provider and some other, we get this. Even though some may need it far more than others, let's make sure it's used to the best means possible. And when you have rural rural healthcare centers, rural hospitals that really took in a disordinate hit uh, because 
frankly, those elective surgeries is really what keeps you alive in the community. And then that provides the opportunity for the additional services uh, for emergency and otherwise uh, for the community. When a, when a uh, network of, of hospitals, they can have the lowest performing hospital cared for uh, with some of the funds that comes from the higher performing hospitals, and they can shift those around. So again, I guess what I say we need to do is be as efficient as possible, look at where the need is, make sure it goes to the most needy, justified first, and then uh, get, get business back to business. Stop standing in the way. And, and, and this whole idea of the Supreme Court decision last week, I'm still angry about that. I don't get it. I'm frustrated when I hear uh, uh, one of the Supreme Court justices say he was surprised that that he had not heard in this suit from the hospitals themselves. I don't get that. I don't get why the suit had to be undertaken by someone outside of the hospital mm -hmm. uh, to try to get care and opening up hospitals to keep their employees, even the ones that aren't vaccinated, uh, for various reasons, health reasons, or religious reasons, uh, or whatever. I, I, when I think of hospitals, I think if you're caring for my medical conditions, I would assume that probably your doctors and nurses know far better than a bureaucrat or a member of Congress. When I was a younger man with more hair, someone once said I looked like Dr. Kildare. I don't think that's true, but I never practiced as a doctor. And, and so, I mean, to say businesses can't have the mandate of 100 employees or more, and then go just to the other side and say hospitals that are trained to deal with health and do not want to put their patients at risk, do not want to put their employees at risk, understand what it takes to keep a healthy uh, uh, campus, are told, no, you, you can't have a waiver. I mean, that's ridiculous. And, and the cost burden that's there and ultimately the threat on your survivability is just unconscionable. You know, Congressman, uh, well said, you know, we have been um, proponents of uh, ensuring that individuals get vaccinated. We firmly believe in vaccination, but we also believe in freedom that our people have, even in Hillsdale, in this community, where vaccination rates are 38. We'd love to see it higher. Uh, we're uh, trying to strive and achieve that because we know historically for decades, vaccinations work. But, you know, our concern is a mandate and the mandate's impact on specifically rural health. And a lot of people miss that uh, perspective as rural health because you have to remember, I'm not competing with five hospital systems, believe it or not. When I mandate this for my environmental services workers and my dietary staff, and they're making about what you could make at, let's say, Walmart or places like that, when we had what happened in, in, in the Supreme Court, you know, with really a two-tiered system that what it did is it divided our workforce. It did. It said for healthcare that the mandate is impacted, not, not just nurses and doctors. We're talking about everyone from in the dietary, in the kitchen, working in the laundry, those positions. And these individuals have choices now, right? These individuals can go to my, not a competitor, but they can go into the marketplace in Hillsdale for about the same amount of pay. And now they don't have to meet those requirements. You know, from the beginning, we have said uh, the importance of choice for individuals. And so now our all around us in the economy, all around us, employers, 
are, are not, you know, the, the OSHA mandate was struck down, and that's great because now uh, the workforces can move forward. They don't have the cost of the testing. All of those things are in play. Um, but for healthcare, we're at a disadvantage because those individuals who feel that they do not want to be vaccinated, they have a con- they they have a right not to be vaccinated. Okay, and so now I lose them because they don't want to have to submit to these weekly tests. Uh, they don't want to have to fill out. We had one employee say they don't want to fill out a religious exemption because they don't feel like they should they should do that, that they should have the availability to say, I don't want to be vaccinated. And so the challenge for us is is in this very competitive environment where it's hard to recruit uh, individuals to work, period. Right. I have a vacancy rate that's pretty high. The highest it's ever been during the pandemic uh, is in, in my history of 11 years here. It's the highest during the pandemic, I had jobs and I had people available, uh, plenty of positions available, but no bodies to fill those positions. So now I'm competing with other industries around me who do not have this mandate, and it will look very attractive. So uh, to your point, you know, we believe in vaccinations as a hospital. We promote it, but we also believe in individual's choice. And when we have a two-tiered system now where, where the, the third largest employer, Hillsdale Hospital, is competing you know, to keep employees here when Walmart, the grocery stores, and other places now have no requirement, it just makes it, it just seems unfair. And that's, that's where we are today. And, and also, who, who is going to take care of the Medicare or Medicaid patient? You know, I, I'm on Medicare. I don't like it, but I'm on Medicare. And just because your hospital would serve me, now you are a government contractor that has lost your ability. I believe your right to make decisions in the best interests of your employees, your staff, your community, and your patients. But because you're taking government funding through Medicaid and Medicare, you lose your right to make your decisions. What does that do for my security as a Medicare patient? of being able to have a hospital that can take care of me if I need it. I didn't ask to be on Medicare. It's what we're required when we reach a certain age. I was happy with my insurance that I had before. I didn't know you could get that when you're 50, Tim. So, wow. <laughs> it must be, did, they, did they lower that? You're a good man, but people know you're lying. Huh? <laughs> that is true. <laughs> so, so, I mean, you're... In the, in, the, in the stretch, the biggest stretch of the of verbiage, you are a government contractor. You don't have a choice. That's right. And we do say that. You know, we, we share that story that we are not given a choice. There's, you know, the conditions of participation with CMS. And I've been challenged by a lot of friends, and Rachel has been part of those discussions, of individuals telling me, well, just don't do it. Well, the the risk of not doing that is they will close the funding source. And 70 percent of our reimbursement, Congressman, comes from the government, Medicaid and Medicare, 70 percent. You don't operate a hospital without that. You don't. And you're not servicing your community. And so if the hospital takes this objection and stands up and says, we're not going to do this, CMS will immediately. And it's very clear. 
Uh, they'll immediately shut the services down in that community, and patients will not be served. So, you know, when when my friends who who ask me often, well, I thought you were a conservative, J.J., and I thought it isn't about being a conservative at this point when you run a hospital. The reality of it is, is you have a conditions of participation, which the government says, this is what you have to do. So it it has been, you know, a significant challenge for us. Now, another challenge that I wanted to talk to you about was a little bit a reference to the supply chain. We're hearing a lot about the supply chain right now, a tremendous amount, in fact. And that's maybe uh, one of the effects of, of COVID-19 uh, is that uh, in contrast, looking at the supply chain to where we were three years ago to where we are today, um, one would, would be concerned. And so what concerns do you have you know, about the supply chain today? And I guess, how is Congress addressing that? Well, sadly, Congress isn't addressing that. So the supply chain is disrupted because, frankly, you've shut down the world, i.e. our world, but the rest of the world has been shut down a great degree as well. You've got bureaucratic mandates about uh, vaccine mandates. So there are longshoremen and others that... uh, aren't working, at least for a while there, to unload ships. Uh, You've got all sorts of disruption in pipelines. And when you add the continuation of COVID to that and the continuation of people till September or October of this year still receiving stimulus checks, you've got trouble in producing the goods and services that are necessary for people. And so when you get that and add to the things that you need for healthcare, um, whether it's um, uh, gear that you wear, uh, robes, masks, um, goggles, you name it, all of a sudden it impacts. Um, And that comes from simply not getting back to normal. So shifting gears here quite a bit, Rural broadband is a topic we talked about last time when we had you on here because, um, of course, we know it's critical to the success and sustainability of rural communities, but also for rural health care. It can become a lifeline in the era of telehealth, and this is an issue that you're particularly passionate about. And there was some funding for this included in the infrastructure bill, right? So where do we stand in the effort to expand broadband access in rural America? I'm passionate uh... I'm glad you remember that. I'm passionate about rural broadband because not only I live in a rural community, but I know that the supply chain, which includes agriculture, has to have the internet. It has to have broadband. A week and a half ago, I was out at the National um, uh, Consumer Technology Exposition. And that's where you see the future now. And I sat in a, I assume, uh, because it's green and yellow, it was a four-wheel drive, probably 250000 if not more, $300,000 tractor. Hmm. But this tractor was autonomous. And the autonomous portion of it was additional 500000 But the, uh, the people who were showing us the tractor said, that sounds really rough for a farmer to be able to purchase. But when you think of some of the larger contract farmers out west or other places, uh, if they can put a tractor in the field to till it, um, to plow it, uh, to be able to run, do the headlands work, uh, be programmed to go around that one standing tree that's still in the field or the wet spot, and then just turn it loose. And when it finishes all its work, it comes back and parks itself. Wow. 
pretty soon the cost savings for what you would have to have for additional employees to do that and the hours to do it. While the farmers in another field doing something similar, this can pay for itself. I don't think many Hillsdale farmers will, will have that in the field, at least right now. But that, that says in agriculture, we already need to have internet capabilities. We have GPS units in tractors and in combines. We have self-driving um, based upon GPS right now when they're picking apples and other things. I've seen them in operation. It's vital plus, plus the, the, uh, the, the, the dumb farmer, as farmers used to say to me, I'm just a dumb farmer and I'd get on them and say, there is no such thing if you're still in business. <laughs> Yeah. You're not a dumb farmer. Right. Right. These guys and gals are up to speed on computers. They're using it. They're determining what type of, uh, of fertilizer they put in the field and nutrients and, and, and weed killers and herbicides and all of that. We need it there. Plus, we found out that in education, a rural community, you need Zooms. You need virtual opportunities just as much as in a, a inner city, city urban district. So my concern I'm glad that there was funding in the infrastructure bill and, and truth in advertising. I voted against the bill because of all of the garbage that was in that bill. But there were some good things I could have voted for had we majored on those. And one of those certainly was, was a rural broadband. The way it was defined, though, it's going to mean each of us who represent rural communities are going to have to be cognizant of where NTIA and others are spending it and where it's being shifted to. The mapping of broadband across the nation has been terrible. We on the Energy and Commerce Committee, on a telecommunications subcommittee, have called for remapping. That's in the process of being approved. But we had communities, it could be, for instance, if Hillsdale City had internet capabilities, the map would say that Hillsdale was fully covered. And I know for a fact that Pittsburgh no. Fully covered, right? Right. Cambria fully covered. Bankers isn't fully covered. No. You know, I can go up in even Somerset area, and I can go through True. a lot of bed spots. Yep. And, and so, we're going to have to watch carefully that that over forty-two um, billion dollars of funding for rural broadband is expended in appropriate places. I want the inner city to have broadband capabilities. But I want the areas that don't have any to have it first before we upgrade areas that have at least a certain level of the mm -hmm. broadband. So that's going to be constant. And with telehealth now, uh, you folks have experienced that. We've got insurance companies now to understand that uh, hospitals and clinics and doctor's offices can give very adequate telehealth coverage. Um, and they should be covered under the insurance contracts as well to pay for that. Uh, it doesn't work in every case, in every situation, but it ought to be a tool that's there. And so that mandates that we have a widespread broadband internet capabilities so we can move forward there. Well, thank you, Congressman Wahlberg. We appreciate the advocacy that you do, and, and certainly it has impacted our community. Uh, even trying to administer some of the telehealth programs here, just the challenges of no connectivity uh, for patients who need to be seen. So this is, this is something very important to us. You know, let's shift a little bit, because uh, as we conclude our program today, let's talk a little bit about why we started this program nearly a year ago. Uh, Rachel and I were talking about what was happening in our industry. 
Uh, and really over the last 10 years, uh, we've had nearly 130, over 130 hospitals in America have closed. A lot of those hospitals are rural, small community hospitals who are sustaining their economies uh, for that rural community. And we only have to look to Albion, Michigan, a district you're very familiar with, and other places throughout Michigan where they've lost their local hospital, they've lost identity as a community, they've lost business and manufacturing. And so we started this program, really, the, the podcast, with the idea of you know highlighting the critical importance of rural health in America. And we've had you know several guest on this program talking about uh, everything from politics to religion to, you know, you name all of the factors that impact rural health. Uh, and so, you know, we arrive here today and we're still faced with significant challenges. And it's hard for rural hospitals, and you've been an advocate for us. You know, but when we talk about sequestration and we talk about that removal of 2%, when we talk about all of the programs that typically can aid hospitals whether it's critical access or otherwise, you know, these are very important topics on our mind to sustain hospitals. Because as I said earlier, 70% of our payer mix is Medicaid and Medicare. Medicaid, we're not making money, right? We're, we're doing, you know, we're doing work for our community that's necessary to keep them healthy. Um, but our reimbursements are extremely low. And we don't have the power to go in and negotiate with Blue Cross and Blue Shield like big systems do to get every dollar that we can uh, because we don't have that power. But, you know, I, I want to talk a little bit about your long-term idea range or thoughts. Uh, what what can we do? What What's the focus to help rural hospitals and support them, uh, as well as healthcare providers. You know, it's not just me. It's a it's the physician who hangs a shingle who's trying to start a business, but he's overwhelmed with, you know, all of the lawsuits, and he's overwhelmed with the cost, and uh, and then the reimbursements, which are much lower in rural communities. So, uh, your idea on long term solutions? I said there's some good news. I believe there is. I think you have some great strategies. I know you've co-signed a couple bills. Could you share with us what your thoughts are on that? Um, you know, I, th I think we ought to see healthcare as a continuum of services that reach all communities. Um, you know, there are there are rural hospitals that have been amalgamated into larger networks, and in some places that works very well. At least keeps the facility in the rural community. In other settings, it doesn't work as well. And the rural hospital that is part of the community that has the design for the community, the understanding of it, and even staff that have chosen to stay in that community, doctors, nurses, because they like the stuff that makes up that community. You know, Hillsdale, I'm sure a lot of them enjoy being there because of the college and some of the uh, cultural and uh, intellectual opportunities they have. They like it because of the surround, surrounding uh, woods and fields, agricultural community. They enjoy that. And so unless we are willing to say we're going to force people all to, to move toward the cities, we're going to have to have services that take care of people that make free decisions in a free land. And so I think we need to find ways of adjusting the cost structures. We have to get away from as many unnecessary mandates that come from the federal government and the bureaucracy that's out there. And my colleague, uh, uh, Jeff Duncan, Representative Duncan from South Carolina, and I have uh, put forward a, a congressional resolution calling for the ending of the vaccine mandates. 
But I think that has to be more broadly developed as well of the expectations that we have for an inner city hospital and the type of care that's given versus a rural hospital with a different clientele, different expectations, uh, and, and an ability in certain cases to, to receive care uh, by leaving the hospital after their care is given and allowing bed spaces to open up more and more. So those are some of the things we're looking at. But that, uh, Rachel, JJ, that goes back to our founding principles that government was supposed to be limited at worst, limited and, and not all encompassing. I spoke uh, this and uh, I used a quote in, in a particular uh, forum that I was at. And it was from Thomas Jefferson, where he said, I predict future happiness for Americans if they can prevent the government from wasting the labors, labors hmm. of the people under the pretense of taking care of them. They've wasted your hospital labors and they're wasting it right now without some sort of waiver from a vaccine mandate. They're wasting the opportunity to provide good health care coverage, mental health care coverage. How many hospitals have a mental wing? Very We're few. crying for that yeah, in major few. cities. They don't have it, but you've seen the need, you've provided for it. You have the resources and in some ways you take it on a chin for providing it as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But we've wasted the labors by shutting down, putting bureaucratic mandates on, and not letting free people make good decisions based upon science and the best technology and information available. We've got to stop that. You know, Congressman, it's always a pleasure to have you on the program, and I know your time is so uh, precious. You've got a lot of work. Uh, you're in Washington today. Um, you know, personally, I've known you for 24 years, hard to believe. It was uh, 1998. You were that was your last year, I believe, in the state house. 98. You um, gave a speech when I was the administrator of New Hope School. Uh, Bill Case, a good friend of ours, uh, and myself, uh, reached out to you, and you delivered a. Um, you you are a commencement speaker for that day, and you know I realized from that moment that you know I like this guy. He's he's solid. Uh, he's got passion. And little would I have ever dreamed that, you know, nearly a decade later, our paths cross again. Uh, we served a lot of ice cream out of that trailer for root beer floats. Uh, we've been a lot of places, but I want to commend you. And I know, um, you know, this is this is not a political program, um, but I think we have to give you credit where credit is due. And you've always stood up for health care. You've always stood up for rural health care. You've always stood up for, you know, your communities that you represent. Uh, even when I was in law enforcement, uh, you've always been a champion and a voice for us. So I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you for, you know, it's not easy. You know, not everybody agrees, obviously, with with what you say. And, and as you said, you've taken it on the chin, too, uh, in your Facebook and as we do uh, for the things that we do. But, you know, you're, you're, uh, you've been a true friend to our community and to our hospital. So I want to thank you for that. And I want to thank you for being part of this program. I think it's important for uh, everyone around, uh, you know, this issue to understand what's really at stake here. You know, it's our rural communities, it's our rural hospitals, and it's our rural sustainability, you know, for our economies. I think those are all very important things that our listeners need to hear uh, beyond rural communities, you know, and that's why we started this. So thank you for your participation today. We've enjoyed having you on the program. 
I appreciate it. Thanks to both of you as well for having me. We look forward to the next opportunity and hopefully the next opportunity will be a little lighter. We'll have turned the corner, getting back toward normal. And then we can talk about the time when you had to run me down to catch the uh, sheriff's uh, Harley Davidson police bike <laughs> and stop me from turning the uh, sirens on. <laughs> yes, I, I do remember those days. Those were fun days. Well, thanks again, Congressman. Have a great day. Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll have another great conversation with another great guest. So be sure to tune in. And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. And you can now find us on Twitter. I'm at Hillsdale CEO JJ. Rachel is at Rural Health Rach. And you can also follow the podcast at Rural Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, and a proud member of the Health Podcast Network, hosted by J.J. Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. Special thanks to today's guest, Reverend Lucas Miller, Pastoral Care Director at Hillsdale Hospital. For more episodes, interviews, and more information, visit RuralHealthRising.com. Will you do that last uh, sentence again? Because yeah. you said talk show. Okay, I'm sorry. Okay, we're not a talk show. Yeah, Yeah. I don't think people will think of us that way. Yeah. All right, Kathy Lee, I'm Regis. All right, Jerry Springer. Oh, wait, that's a different kind of show. That's not That's okay, Oprah.